Hello and welcome back to Fascinate Pod. I'm Sam Brown and today's episode is on climate change. I'm speaking to Alice Bell. She's the Director of Communications at Possible. When we recorded this a couple of months back, Possible were called 1010 Climate Action. They've gone through a little bit of a rebrand. So if you hear me talking about 1010 Climate Action, that's the reason. I came across Dr. Alice Bell when I saw a talk of hers about the history of climate change, and it really opened my eyes as to how long we've known about this. And I think it's vital that we spread the message. So in this episode, you'll hear us talk a little bit about that. And also, some of the things that makes us hopeful for the future. Some of the ways that we can change our environment for the better. Stand up and take responsibility for what is happening to our climate. Alice has so much to say on so many topics. I really enjoyed listening to her speak. So let's do that. Alice Bell. So thanks very much for coming onto the podcast. I've been looking at your website a little bit recently, and there's there's a phrase on there that really resonated with me. 1010 has a vision for low-carbon Britain, built by and belonging to everybody. Now, there's obviously a huge conversation about carbon, which I'm sure we'll get onto in a second. Um, but the second part of that, built by and belonging to everybody, is that uh, sort of a nod to taking personal ownership and responsibility about this problem that we're facing? It's partly a personal ownership thing, um, which I think is important. I think it's very easy when you're thinking about climate change to be like, oh, it's just the oil companies, and if we can fight them, then we'll be liberated from this problem. It's more complicated than that, and particularly people who live in the UK. Most of us have choices where we could cut a lot of carbon that we don't. Relative to the rest of the world, we live very high-carbon um, lifestyles not everyone more some people are more constrained than others and I'm not about to be like you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do that also I just don't think that's going to be very inspiring to get people to take action on climate change and I think if you care about climate change you should be taking personal responsibility in your life and using that to talk to other people about it so an example might be like so this, we all know like an annoying person who's given up flying and given up eating meat and they like won't shut up you know it's that joke about <laughs> can spot a vegan because they won't shut up about it but that's actually it's quite good if they're talking about it because they're sharing it, well it depends on how they do it if they're like i've given up meat i've given up flying aren't i great then and just alienating people that's not helpful but if they're like trying to bring other people in so they're saying hey why don't you come around to mine for dinner and then they feed you this amazing plant-based meal that's about inviting people in so i say to people that they should be thinking about what actions they can do themselves but how they can be infectious with that so it doesn't just stay with the unit of the individual because that's not going to have any power you as an individual can have a load of power though in terms of the interactions you have with others and that will overall help create the kind of cultural change that we really need and particularly when it comes to things like flying and eating that's those are things that we really need to bring our, our our environmental impact down on um and we as there's things that we do as individuals that can make a difference but go back to that larger statement it's not just about that i think probably more important than any of that conversation is the fact that a lot of our transition it's a lot of the discussion about transition to a low carbon or a zero carbon economy that would like at the moment the government's you know agreed that they're going to go to zero carbon by 2050 and we need to think about all the very, very radical changes that we need to put in place as a nation to do that, which we as a, the, you know, the global population of humans have to do in order to get there. 
And they could be very top down. They could be about building very large bits of infrastructure that actually most of us don't have any interaction with and might end up leaving a lot of people behind. So we look at the way that Thatcher closed the coal mines in the 80s. Now, she did not do this for environmental reasons, um, although she did get celebrated as a bit of an eco-hero when she died, which is possibly inappropriate. She was a bit of a climate sceptic in her later years. But anyway, I mean, credit to her. She gave a really good speech at the UN in 1989. Anyway, when she closed the, the coal mines, we're still seeing the impact of the way that that was done in communities around the UK. There was a study done by, I think, the University of Sheffield not long ago that looked at quite how much those communities are still suffering because how quickly those coal communities were shut down and the way they were done it. So if we're talking about changing jobs and the whole cultures and communities and livelihoods and whole cities that exist around some industries that need to shift, we need to think about how we do that in a way that doesn't leave people behind. And we're, we're here at 1010. Is that part of your objective then? You want to go into those communities and help them through some of the projects that you're working with? Yeah, we want to put communities in the steering wheel of the change that we're going to have. So we know that in order to create the kind of dramatic, radical action on climate change that we need, we need to, everybody needs to be doing all of the things. It kind of makes you dizzy when you think about all of the things that we need to do and all the different levels and places we need to work on. And some of it does need to be done at government level. Some of it does need to happen at the level of big multinational companies. And some of it can be done at an individual level. It can be like an individual decision that you make about what holiday you go on or how you're going to feed yourself. However, I think that one of the most powerful places that any of these things will work is at a community level. And when it comes to some of the changes that we're going to be faced with, actually communities are in a very good position to think about what are the many choices they've got in front of them. So a good example is heating. Most of our houses at the moment in the UK will be heated by gas. You, you probably have your hot water and your heating come from burning fossil fuels, burning gas. Oh. Now, of your fossil fuels of choice, that's a cleaner one, but we do need to stop that because it's a fossil fuel and we need to keep it in the ground. We cleaned up that system in, in the 60s, actually, when we transferred from using coal gas to natural gas. We kind of swapped over the system when we found national, natural gas in the North Sea. And also there were some te- technological developments that meant we could move it around. Because before that, we used to burn loads of coal to make our gas. That's where those big gasometers are that are being turned into parks and shopping centres and stuff. But that's when we used to burn coal in order to create our gas. And we cleaned it up in the 60s. And now we need to clean it up again. And it'll probably... In some places, it might be about making gas in a new way and we can kind of transfer the system a bit and it won't feel that different, but that's not going to work everywhere and there still will be differences. You'll still need to, you know, change. you'll probably have to have your streets dug up. There'll, there'll be a disruption. But we might also want to start to heat and potentially cool ourselves with whole other different technologies like things like heat pumps. We might want to have some communities going onto something like a heat network, which some of your listeners might already live in a heat network i live um in a an estate that has a shared boiler it's really annoying it went off this morning i had to <laughs> have been worrying about when i'm going to do my washing up when i get home and thinking about oh i need to have a shower in the gym um so i have a shared boiler some other you know you might well have lived somewhere that does that some some um communities have a larger so it won't just be a shared boiler in a building but it might be like a larger network of of built several buildings that kind of share a heating system that can be a lot more energy efficient and there's lots of good reasons to put groups on a heat network but you have a lot less control so any of you who've listened any of you listening who might be living in that kind of uh, either a heat network or a shared boiler you might well not have as much control as you would do in a house with your own thermostat um, 
but there's benefits and disadvantages and there's ways of doing it well. And if the community look together and they're like, well, do we want this or do we want that? They can be part of making those decisions. Or we work with a community in Balkan in Sussex who were the first place to have uh, an anti-fracking protest in mm. the UK. There were frackers, there were anti-frackers, there was the media, politicians, everybody sort of, there's a massive fracking circus for a whole summer and it was really disruptive to the town and they, or the village, it's a small little village in, in Sussex. They were left with this question that most of us managed to avoid which is how are we going to power ourselves so most of us just click a button and get a bill and don't really think about it too much we might go as far as getting a renewable energy supplier for electricity but you know most of us don't really think about it but this community because they'd had all these fracking protests and it had been quite divisive in their town they'd argued about it had to think about what do we want and in the end they didn't frack in the village and the frackers went away and the anti-frackers followed them and the media went home but they were left quite bruised and thinking about this question and they, they thought about it as a village and we, we worked with them to think about the different options and they thought they decided they wanted to go solar and they wanted it to be community-owned solar so it wouldn't be a matter of somebody driving a big drill in or, or driving in a big um, solar farm or a big wind turbine that was another company doing it it would be about something that they'd own and they ended up building a solar farm which matched the electricity demand for their village and the village next door but it was a beautiful solar farm that they built they thought about where it would be sited initially they were thinking we want to put it on the roofs because we don't like solar farms we don't want agricultural land used for solar and then they looked at how many roofs they'd have to put it on and how that would change the way the village looked and they also learnt more about what bits of land they could put solar on and how actually it could be some of the best use of some of the agricultural land that currently needed to be treated quite a lot before it could be used for growing crops and you can have a field with solar farm with solar panels in it um, used for sheep grazing so it's still used for food production or even if it's not used for food production it can still be seen as a good use of that land particularly if it's currently not very good land. They thought about where it'd be sited so it wouldn't um, interfere with the view because it's an area of outstanding natural beauty and it's very important for the local people that it hasn't done that. They thought about how they'd have the hedgerows, which would also protect the view, but on top of that, provide um, space for mammals to get through, so like for the badger population and the, hedge, um, the hedgehogs. Um, there was a lot of other work on biodiversity. They, you know, the community could be in control about that question of how are we going to power ourselves and they created something much better than would often be done and a lot faster you know that community was decarbonizing way before any, the government was sorting out anybody else i mean another side of that is they kind of invented solar powered trains but that's a whole other story anyway basically when you put communities in control you often get much better outcomes and faster ones and we'd argue that even if that isn't the case you get one that the local people abide into have bought into and i think it's really important that they have the power to do that because there's even people who are like, yeah, I care about climate change. I don't think they realise quite how urgent it is. Like, I was reading this piece today, I think it was in The Telegraph, about how it's like, if we landed on the moon, we can tackle climate change. And people often talk about how it's our moonshot. That is... Can I swear? Yeah, sure. That is bollocks. It is such bollocks. That we have never done anything as big as we need to do to tackle climate change. The dramatic actions that we need to take and the dramatic change that we have to, to bring to our, our economy and to our society and to our culture, like the way we talk, the way we live, the way we interact with each other, has got to shift so much. Our expectations about what we think of as a good life has to shift so much, so quickly, if we're going to, to keep life at a level which is... is pleasant and easy to live in it's just very dangerous that if we put some people in control it'll happen very fast and it will hurt people 
not as much as climate change admittedly but a lot and so it's vital that we we ensure that that people get a chance to be in control of this very fast moving change otherwise they'll just be alienated so in a village it might be quite easy to get a community together they can all meet and decide on what the best course of action would be what do you suggest for people living here in london then it is harder, although one of the things we found with some of the community energy work that we've done is it's, it's a really good way of bringing communities together. So we used to have a network of solar schools, and some of them were rural, some of them were urban, but one of the things that happened with nearly every solar school we did is that they reported that not only did they go solar, which they loved, but it helped bring the community together. And a school is already a great social hub, wherever it is. It often brings, particularly actually in urban areas, it can really bring different parts of society together who wouldn't otherwise talk to each other, particularly primary schools because you get parents hanging out to pick up their kids and things like that. Um, but you, it really, it, there was a couple of schools actually that were threatened with closure and the, the experience doing solar schools helped them um, build so much of a better relationship with the local community that their numbers of applicants boosted and it kept the, the school going. That's interesting. So we, there's also, I mean, there's a couple of really amazing urban community energy projects that really show the power of this. I was talking to someone who helps run a really brilliant project called Repowering London that does solar installs in social housing. They started in Brixton, then they moved to Hackney, and they're currently doing one um, near the Grenfell site in Kensington and Chelsea. And they said that one of the outcomes of the solar installation project that they did, so they do it working with the local community, it's actually the kids that live on the estates that install the solar panels themselves, which is amazing. Not like three-year-old kids, like teenage kids. When I say kids, young adults. Yeah. You know, local young people. So they're easy enough for, for the children without any sort of technical training to they be have able to, to do so that. So one of the first things, they, so what they do in their system is part of the profits from the solar array that goes on the roof of the estate would be ploughed into running what they call a solar institute program so the young people they're they're in their late teens they're not young children the young people they will have a few hours a week you know working on this and one of the first things they do is get a construction certificate so they do have to have training they have to have a certificate to allow them to do some construction work and then they use those skills to install the solar panels. So when we did our larger solar schools project with seven-year-olds, they were not installing the solar panels. Um, but the way that repowering works is it's young people from the local community that are involved in doing it. That's great. They feel so like like they've given back to the community, like they're doing something. I told it. And also you're like, who are these people putting solar panels on my roof? Oh, it's Dion's daughter. That's fine. You know, it's like, it's just, oh, it's oh, it's Carl's cousin. That's, oh, I know that person. You know, it's, it's part of the relationship. But one of the things they said was that um, one of their solar interns, very, very sadly, um, was stabbed. And so there's a lot of knife crime in these areas. And it died. Um, but one of the many communities that could be there to kind of help people through the, dealing with knife crime has been the solar community. So there's loads of communities in the area that are helping support people. But that's one of them. And because what they've done by building a solar project is also create a social community. So, and it has been, we've done quite a few projects in urban environments. We're doing a project at the moment in Hackney, which is uh, looking at whether we can put heat pumps in parks. So I don't know if where you live, you've got a local park. Yeah, I live up near Alexandra Palace. Right. So you probably go through like Finsbury Park a lot as well, like around that area. Finsbury Park frequently shut for concerts. Parks up and down the country, it's not just London, are regularly shut because the local authorities who run them have to close them to rent them out for festivals to make money because their budgets have been cut and so in particularly in Bristol there's a big controversy at the moment about putting advertising up in parks so we already have a lot of our transport system just like the media system is subsidized by advertising you know your tube ticket would cost a lot more if you weren't 
allowing your eyes to be rented out by all these adverts you go yeah. past. So parks could go the same way as a way of funding parks. You just have to have advertising everywhere. And the people in Bristol are understandably really against that. I can understand that. Because you think of parks as a place you go to escape that sort of stuff. But how are you going to fund them? So we've got this project with Hackney where we put heat pumps under the park. So it's a technology that can take heat from the ground and it doesn't, the ground doesn't need to be particularly hot. Heat pumps are like reverse fridges. Basically, they can take a small amount of heat from the ground and then use it um, to heat buildings around the house, you know, heat water and heat that space. Um, And you can put these heat pumps, you need quite a lot of land, so they don't normally work in urban environments. You do see them in the countryside more often, but you could have enough land with a park. So we've been looking at whether... So you you have to dig up a bit of a park to install the heat pumps, but you just do that once, and you can do that a bit at a time so it doesn't really disrupt people. And then you don't have to rent it out all summer for concerts, unless it's a concert you actually want, you know, like your local county fair or something. Um, And there's a revenue stream scheme um, provided for the park because it's generating heat that's selling to local communities. The local communities are buying their heat from the park, so they're getting a very fair price. The park's not going to rip off the local community. Um, It potentially is a consistent price, so our gas prices might well go up a lot once we start thinking about how much carbon that it, uh, it's releasing and how dangerous it is. There's all sorts of reasons why gas prices might go up. Anyway, you've got a consistent um, price for your heat because it's this renewable heat that's being sort of taken from the ground. Uh, it's a great project, but we would be doing it. I mean, you could just go in and just do it and not talk to the local community about it at all. If we if we do it, the way we'll do it is do it where we have members of the local park user groups being like involved from the beginning. So they would think about where the heat pumps are going to go. They might be involved. We might There's different ways we might do it in terms of getting the money. It could be that the council have a green bond. So they'd sell a bond. They've done this in some parts of the country where like you could invest some money in the council and you get a really great, good rate of interest off it, but that'll be a way that they make money. So local people might have invested it. They might sort of own a bit of the heat pump. Um, they might help us cite it. They might help us talk about it to the local community. We might have a heat fe- pump festival or something ridiculous like that. Um, but there's a lot of scope for doing more heat work in urban areas as well. We also really want to do more on insulating homes so that we use less energy and people are protected from um, fuel poverty. That's another thing you could do collaboratively and bring communities together to do. One of the other projects that I've seen that you're involved with is looking at London's long-lost rivers. So that's a very similar idea, again, taking heat pumps into an urban area, but this time burying them in the sewers. Um, So we've romantically called them the Lost Rivers of London because that is actually what they are. Like, There are loads of rivers that used to run through London, the Fleet, the Ephra, there's roads named after them now. And they sort of run into the Thames. And basically when we embanked the Thames, when we built the embankment, because it used to be a shoreline, like a bit like a beach, um, which we did partly to clean up the stink, because it's stunk. Uh, so people used to just put their shit into these rivers, and then those rivers would pour, would flow into the Thames. It's literally what it is. <laughs> you can imagine. How, it was also very dangerous, a huge um, health problem, and apparently in the summer it stunk so bad, if you could afford to, you just moved out of London. So they cleaned up the river where they kind of built various different systems that helped it flow and could go through treatment works and through a lot of that a lot of those also with just the building work that's happened in London over the years most of those rivers have been kind of buried and they go underground so if you've ever been to Holborn Viaduct it's called Holborn Viaduct because it used to go over the river fleet but the river fleet now uh, just goes under goes under the street basically so we could put a heat pump in the Holborn oh no, in the fleet under the Holborn Viaduct and it could heat buildings around Smithfield and how effective are they then? They can be really powerful. So they're used in Scotland. There's quite a lot of projects like this starting to pop up in Scotland. 
uh, Scottish Water are kind of into the idea. The problem in London is Thames Water have got plenty of other things on their, on their plate. We're keen that we might be able to get a few exemplar projects going. If we could get a few going, I think that we might get more. One of the other problems with getting it off the ground is that currently gas is quite cheap. So if you're like, how am I going to heat my building? Oh, I care about the environment, mm, but gas is really cheap. And the cost of the infrastructure required, so even if you're building a new building. So we, when we did our project on London's Lost Rivers, we did identify a couple of different spaces that it could work, one of which was Buckingham Palace which we chose partly because it's been redone at the moment. And the problem is it's like too far in the process before we suggested the idea. But in theory, they could have done it if they thought about it while they were redoing stuff. And apparently the Queen has got a swimming pool. Um, so it could have been used to heat her swimming pool. She's got a swimming pool just for her. <laughs> her and the royal family. <laughs> of course she does. We could have used the River Tyburn. Or um, there's a river out west. I forgot the name which river it is. I used to know what these. There's a river out towards Hammersmith, which could have been used in Hammersmith, Hammersmith Town Hall because they're redeveloping that. Now we've put the idea out there. There could be some more developments that are happening now. In fact, if somebody wants to, if someone's doing a, a London building project and wants to do something really cool and green energy that's forward thinking and will help. At the moment, it would cost a bit for the building, but it's one of those things that might well pay them back in the meantime, in the future, and will it would you know give them you know they could get a green award off the back of it. This is the sort of thing um, that people could be thinking about doing at the moment. And how do you help them out? Well, it depends on what project we're doing. So things like the Hackney Parks project, we are working in conjunction with Hackney and some engineers to look at the feasibility of it. The next stage might well be if, um, to then start to build a programme to start to make it happen, you know, and we can project manage how that whole process would work because we have skills on how to build a community energy project. We're very well connected with both engineers and comms people and public engagement people, so we can often work very well as a, a way of sort of helping people make things happen, really. A lot of what we do is just storytelling, though, so we're very, well, just a very important part of it is telling the story. So we might see a project and say, that's awesome. You don't really need us. We might introduce you to some engineers and you two can get some funding and make that happen. Um, but the power that we'll really have is telling their story to other people. And so that project just doesn't happen in isolation. Other people see it and are inspired by it and want to copy it, um, which, you know, the people running the first project don't necessarily care about because they've done their project but it's really important for us in terms of it's really important in terms of speeding up action on climate change that we all know about these ideas so we can see what's possible because most people have no idea about what what is possible so the sorts of stories that we can tell help show that a really good example of that is the solar trains project that we're working which came out of this Borkham solar farm idea they just looked at the trains and they were like why don't we just plug our solar farm into the trains and they asked an electrical engineer if that's possible, and he kind of went, in theory. And it just got put on a shelf, and nobody did anything about it. And what we did was we got the funding, we brought people together to do research to see if it was feasible, which is very similar to what we're doing in Hackney at the moment with the heat pumps in parks. We're just doing the research to see if it's feasible, to work out the economics of it, to see how much of it is affordable now, how much of it might be affordable in the future, whether we can make it work. And then with the solar trains one, we could see how it could make it work. We built the relationships in network rail and we should be plugging in a test rig on the Waterloo to Weymouth line in the next couple of weeks. And then in the next year, part of the Waterloo to Weymouth line will be solar powered. So one of the things that we can do is just make it happen. But sometimes we see things like that and we're like, you, we don't, you don't need us to make it happen. And then we'll go away and use our energy somewhere else. 
somewhere that does need to have, make it happen. So like I talked about the repowering project in Brixton, they, they are already awesome. They don't need any of our help. You know, we're not going to go, we're not going to go there. They're already being brilliant. I really liked the name that you had for the um, train project. Riding yeah, riding sunbeams, yeah. So if you're taking the train down to the seaside in Weymouth, you can feel like you're riding a sunbeam. It's good to get the message out there that people can actively use some of these projects that you're facilitating, I suppose. The other thing to do with the uh, the trains is that you're trying to encourage people to give up flying a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. Everybody likes to go on holiday. Yeah. What's your advice for people who don't want to give up their time going, you know, going to Spain or something? On the trains, I'd say that you shouldn't just ride this, the systems we're setting up. You should be bugging your local, whoever owns your local train system, because they might well to be able to go solar too, and they can get in touch with us if they want to do that. So, you know, it doesn't just have to be about travelling to Waterloo to do it, because we're already working in Cardiff, and there's plenty of other parts of the whole world that could use this technology. Just mm. to put that there. Okay, so flying. Um... It's the big challenge. How can you get people to stop using so much carbon for their holidays without spoiling their holiday? And I think one of the things that's really important to appreciate in the flying story is the inequalities of who fly. I think it's something like 70% of the flights are taken by 15% of the population, something like that. Um, And 50% of British people don't fly every year. Uh, A large number of us have never flown. And certainly, globally, most people haven't flown. So for your average usual Brit, it might be that you go on holiday abroad one year, but you might not for several other years. That's actually quite normal. And we don't necessarily want to stop people from doing that. So if it's like a really amazing trip or like I I flew this year, I flew because some very good friends of mine were getting married in America. And that was the most sensible way of getting to America. So I was like, well, make the decision about whether I'm going to be at their wedding or not. I decided I felt quite guilty about the amount of carbon I was using. But, and I, I do feel guilty about it. And I know I've got lots of environmentalist friends who feel it's really wrong and I shouldn't have done it. But I made that decision with myself that I wanted to, to be there for their special day. And it, it was amazing. And we made the most of while we were there and saw other friends. And it was a big trip. You know, that's a big event. I'm not flying for my some other, you know, any other kind of holiday I'm having this year. Equally, you know, my brother's wife is from Malaysia. So they will come over and, and visit Malaysia. I've got family all over the world. And, you know, you, you want to visit friends and family who live places. And many of us have very international families and friends. And that's it's a part of being a global citizen. It's probably a good thing. I think it's also good for people to explore the world. But that's different from people who are taking this 70% of our flights, some of whom fly, like, weekly. Mm. So one of the things that we support is a frequent flyer levy, which is that we all get a couple of flights a year on normal taxes. One of the reasons why flying is cheaper than taking the train is it's not taxed in the same way. So just say, like, you get that one, that's fine. Aviation should probably be taxed a bit more, but you don't have, like, super taxes on that. If you take more than those, you've got to pay a special frequent flyer tax. And then I think you'll find people not setting up a situation where they have a second home in Tuscany where they fly every couple of years, a couple of weeks, a couple of days even, some of them. And that will shift. So that's one thing we're doing. Another thing we're doing is trying to help people make the decision to take a train for their holiday when they don't necessarily need to fly. So one of the reasons we know people are worried about taking a train to, for example, Manchester to Rome, which is a reasonable trip lengthwise. One reason is cost. If you book it early enough in advance, it doesn't necessarily have to be that much more expensive. And often the trip includes staying places as part of your holiday trip. You're not playing accommodation somewhere else. You're either taking a night train or maybe you're having a day's accommodation in between. And that's part of the trip. And that's exciting. You've got a day in Paris. People like that. They don't, that's not so much of a problem often. 
They're worried about the time it'll take though. So they're like, I've only got a week's off. I don't want to spend all this time on the train. I want to go to Rome. So what we've been doing is setting up a scheme that employers can join where they give, it's called Climate Perks, and you can give your staff the perk, just like you might give them cheap gym membership or it's very different systems of perks. Bigger organisations have amazing perks. Where I work, we have hardly any because we're small charity, but you know, lots of organisations have perks for, for their employees. And you just say um, it's a bit of extra time if your holiday has been done on a low-carbon approach. So it might use a particular type of boat. It wouldn't work for a cruise ship because they are incredibly polluting but say oh oh, yes cruise ships are very very polluting not least even for the amount of people that are on there yeah not least when they're in dock and they're belching out all the diesel there's a huge air pollution issue talk to people in liverpool about cruise ships so if you take the ferry to dublin for example that takes a bit longer dublin london to dublin it is quicker to fly but it's very doable to take the train and in fact it's often as cheap to take the train and, and to the boat but it does take a little bit longer. So you, the, under our scheme, you get that bit of extra time on top of it. So if you did your Manchester to, to Rome, that might, might add like quite a lot of time, but you could get that time up to two days a year as extra leave. And we know that people often work quite a bit of extra time before they go on holiday anyway. So honestly, I don't think the employers would be losing that much. And they've got happier staff that contribute, helping them cut their carbon emissions. We've got quite a few employers that have already signed up to be pioneers on this perk scheme. So we've got people signing up already and we're going to formally launch in a few months. Um, and those sorts of things are the ways that we want to try and make it easier for people to still... I still think it's really important that when we have this radical change, because I like to say it's, re- it's incredibly huge, all the ways we need to change, and it can seem really terrifying, but some of it could be much better, and also it can still be joyful. So it's important we have, like, renewable energy swimming pools, ideally not just ones owned by the Queen. You know, like, our local swimming pool should not be... It shouldn't, it shouldn't have to close because gas bills are too much. We should be able to heat our local swimming pool with renewable energy so that we can all enjoy it there is a political job as well though which we'll also be doing which is and working with others on which is having systems that make it easier to to travel long distances with low carbon so we should be able to in a few years if we invest properly in the infrastructure have very fast efficient electric trains that take us you know from edinburgh to madrid you know there are already some incredible ones that happen in europe and parts of Asia and they could be a lot better and we could have them much, we could have much better ones in, in Britain and certainly like when I was in the States we were using trains to get around in the States and America could have such amazing trains that go from like you could have an incredible train with a cinema and a gym in it that would take you super fast all the way from New York to California uh, it, we can ha- we can have a world like that we have the technology to do that it just take that will take though a little bit more political investment I think it's just the upfront cost isn't it nobody wants to I think one of the problems of, with politicians is they, they don't want to put that initial funding in, which will look bad on them, and then the following political party four years later will benefit and reap the rewards from the, the plans that they put in place. Yeah, it's partly a long-term thinking thing. In fact, on the train stuff, one of the reasons why we're working in Wales and around Cardiff is they've got something, part of their political system has the well-being of future generations. It's called the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, and it's a whole political approach which enforces any political decision that happens in Wales um, has to think about the well-being of, of future generations so it forces politicians to think beyond that four or five year election cycle which I think we need I mean there's criticisms of how well it worked and you can't just have an act and think that that solves a problem you need to think about how like with any political system you need to think about how it's put in place and how people apply it but it's, it was one of the things that helped us 
do the trains work in Wales where there are fewer opportunities in England, but not least because they're electrifying the railways in Wales and they're not electrifying them in England. It's really good that they've got that, or that they've put that act in place. It's a step in the right direction, even if it's not as successful as you'd hope it would be. Short term, like a, an investment infrastructure would also produce jobs. So there's lots of arguments to be investing heavily for short-term reasons as long as the long-term reasons, as well as the long-term reasons. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why things like the moon landings are more use... I mean, I do think it's bollocks to think that it's, it's so much bigger than the moon landings. People need to appreciate how big this is. But at the same time, the moon landings was this you know, huge, large-scale project people put a huge amount of money into at a time when people didn't necessarily... You know, there's that song about... Um, what put Whitey on the moon, you know, like people are dying in the streets. Why are you putting someone on the moon? It seems very frivolous. Mm. It's a very fair critique of the Apollo projects. But at the same time, there's so many other things that came out of that, you know, Teflon. <laughs> Was it Teflon? That's all, you know, there's all those different spin-off products. And solar panels. We never would have had solar panels if it wasn't for the space race. You know, like... It's, it's funny that you mentioned that because my previous guest was... He's um, someone who applied to go to Mars... And uh, he was talking about all the amazing spin-offs that have come from the, the lunar landings. And his motivation for being one of the first people to go to Mars is to motivate the next generation to solve the problems that we have on Earth. It's not just about going to oh, Mars, yeah. it's about all the problems that we can solve here. And that includes food production and power production and that type of thing as well. That's a fair enough argument for doing those things. But we also need to appreciate that if we solve the big challenges on Earth, we'll also discover all the things that will solve other problems. So... We should totally invest in exploring all sorts of the universe. I think you know, exploring is a good thing that humans do. And we should invest loads more in science and technology. And I don't, I don't want us to play a game of like, let's go to Mars or tackle climate change, because why can't we have both? Um, but I think the same argument that you put of all those spin-off stuff to any space age stuff that you've done could totally be applied to like, renewable energy or all sorts of other things that we haven't invested nearly enough into. And the more we invest in these things, the more other things we'll find. Agreed. But do you think it's because it's very easy to see a product when you put somebody on the moon? It's quite quite a vivid image. Mm. And if you take the example to climate change, what is the product that people can see? It's much more abstract and difficult to say, well done, we avoided something, yeah. than it is to say, well done, we achieved something. I think that's one of the challenges of action on climate change, is that it can be quite abstract to see. And the impacts of climate change, they never, it's not climate change necessarily that hurts you, it's the, how it folds into other things. It comes up wrapped up in a load of other political and social failings, our built infrastructure, our natural infrastructure. It's, it's a complicated beast. I think there's something quite inspiring about preserving our planet to be livable on, but at the same time it is harder to be like, oh, well, we, we avoided this, than it was, look, there's a man on the moon, isn't that exciting? It's partly a matter of appreciating what we've got on Earth and wanting to preserve it. So one of the problems, I think, with some of the discourse around, like, particularly in the late 20th century about sending people to the moon or all the other things that we did, was it was kind of distancing ourselves from nature. And there is this old... So it sounds a bit like a hippie when you say this, you're like, we need to get back to nature. But I think part of the problem with with that we are in is that a lot of us have allowed ourselves to be distant from the earth that we've got and I find it really hard to talk about this without sounding like an old hippie but there is some truth in the fact that we need to I mean actually I would say go hug a tree because it's actually really nice go hug a tree but like just appreciate um the different you know the biodiversity that we've got uh like I grew up in a city I like 
we used to have to go on school trips to go and see sheep otherwise we would not see them there is something nice isn't there if you go to a park or if you go to the to the woods or something like yeah. that just to spend a little bit of time there i don't is, know what it there is there is something nice about it and on top of, and we should appreciate that niceness and but on top of that i think is like a thing that we just need to learn to respect and appreciate that all the other things that we've got like going to the moon we wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for nature like you know, our food comes from from growing things and uh, all the materials that we've got have been you know that we made a spaceship out of we mined that from the earth um there's a sort of learning about environmental scientists sciences and the geological sciences and things like that that i think is really important and that we don't i certainly i mean maybe i'm just projecting because i just didn't do it i think i let myself as a as a child be a bit more like yeah spaceships and um Ah, tree's boring. I certainly thought anything to do with the environmental sciences was really dull until I was a teenager. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. The ocean is incredible. I mean, did you see that picture of that jellyfish that was taken? This woman went swimming and she was like, that's a giant jellyfish. And she took a photograph of it. It was in the news today. There's like a huge jellyfish the size of about three people. Like, there are incredible things out there that I'm like, oh, let's go to the moon and see these amazing things. I'm like, oh, I can just see amazing things off the coast of Sussex. And I think we need to spend a little bit of time seeing amazing things in an our area and then we maybe preserve them a bit more one of the reasons why we think that putting a man on the moon is exciting is that we've been told that it's exciting for decades you know there's a whole pr machine that helped make us excited by that i don't think it naturally is any more exciting than a giant jellyfish and we need to spend a bit more time as a culture appreciating giant jellyfishes and grass or whatever did you hear about the story um there's a billionaire who's decided to buy up a lot of the land of the of the world as much as he can to preserve it and to make it publicly accessible as, as parks yeah right but that sort of thing i think is it's i mean maybe it shouldn't happen for millionaires but yes like well, well my point is like i think it should because i don't think any government is really gonna put their money into that type of thing they've got so many draws on them from so many different people deciding to preserve a plot of land which they could otherwise you know build on or put a a motorway through to increase productivity in the national GDP. They're, they've got so many draws that they won't put that money into it. But I suppose one political ideology would say that well, the millionaires can do it, and another might say, let's just take it from them. I mean, one way in which you can cut a lot of carbon is by eating the rich, I suppose. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say one or the other is more powerful. I think probably we need actors in lots of different areas pushing yeah. it different directions. So if we have a bit of people who have power, be it collective power in their communities to shout at politicians to get them to do stuff, and we can appreciate that we have a lot more power like that, or more obvious bits of power like a billion pounds in the bank. All of us think about what power we've got and how we can mobilise it to liberate those spaces. It's not just about parks. I mean, it's about living, giving space back to nature. Like, I work in climate change, and it's very easy to look at this just through a lens of cutting carbon, because it's so urgent. But there are so many other environmental crises at the moment, which aren't just to do with climate change, although it, it affects everything, it gets into everything. The biodiversity crisis is massive. Like, the number of species that are dying out at such alarming rates. And that mm. is partly due to just our impact on the earth as a species and we talk about the planet now being we talk about it being a whole new era the anthropocene so it's the the era of humans that we dominate you know the earth and there's all sorts of terrifying statistics and stuff like this like there are more lego men in the earth than humans and they will outlast all of us (laughs) you know it's lines like that yeah and then there's all sorts of terrifying things about how much concrete you've produced and like how much 
And how this has been going on for centuries, this is not new. So there's lots of arguments about when the Anthropocene started. I think most leading scientists are kind of arguing that it's going to be kind of 1945-ish, but there's still a lot of people who are arguing. There's some really good arguments from some leading geoscientists who say that we should go a lot earlier and maybe put like... 1610 or even earlier 1457 as a date for the start of the anthropocene we've been doing this for a long time why 1457 what happened then oh, maybe i've got it wrong but isn't that the date that columbus landed in america it's whatever that date was i'm <laughs> terrible at history in that period um whatever point it was that columbus claimed to have discovered the americas uh, but it's the point where what we used to call the old world and the new world joined so that's also why 1610 is argued because after um the european came over and settled and colonised and killed people in the Americas. That led to a lot of people who, in the, people in, in the Americas had been farming. And one of the impacts of farming is it, it creates higher carbon emissions because you cut down trees to graze livestock. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the ways in which we as humans, even in the 17th century, even in the 16th century, even in the 12th century, were already having an impact on, on, on the climate. So you clear land to cut down trees, to build houses on or to grow other crops or to graze livestock. And the trees can't absorb carbon. So overall, the carbon emissions, the carbon in the, in the atmosphere rises. We've interfered with the natural carbon cycle. Uh, in fact, they think that, well, some people argue that humans getting really good at farming and around, I think, like the 7th century may have stopped a, a, the impacts being obvious of like a, a sort of little ice age. And that there was what's called a little ice age, which wasn't a real ice age. It was just, it was quite cold. So people call it the little ice age from about um, the 15th century to the 19th century, where in parts of the world, it was noticeably colder. And you can see impacts of that in like wars um, because there was, it, there were enough frosts that, you know, there were food problems and people, you know, food, people died, there was famine. Um, you can see an impact in art and literature and language. Anyway, um, th- that was, I'm coming to this because it was part of the carbon cycle so uh you've got people farming all over the world in the americas trees are cut down carbon emissions go up all these europeans turn up kill loads of people dead people can't farm so before the colonialists get themselves organized and start farming themselves the vegetation starts to grow back and you've got all these previously farmed areas uh, are now wild again so the carbon dioxide gets absorbed and the carbon dioxide the carbon dioxide levels drop you can see a dip in the global carbon dioxide levels because we can do clever things where we can check in things like tree rings and bury uh, little bubbles of, uh, of air that are buried in deep in ice in glaciers. You can see how much carbon dioxide there was in the atmosphere in centuries before. So we can see in the carbon record in 1610, there's a dip in carbon. And this, they think, is caused by the colonisation of the Americas. Wow. And that's why they argue it's the start of the Anthropocene is when we did that. And, and then they just think, after that, was there a, a quite a steep growth? Yes, because that, well, then the growth started to get gradually steeper. It's not until the 18th, 19th century that we really start burning coal on an industrial level. The first starting off of that happens in quite localised places and not, it's, it's not super, super fast. So you really see the extreme acceleration of that kind of from the middle of the 19th century. But you can, they think that this 1610 dip was one of the contributors to this so-called Little Ice Age that existed right up into, until the middle of the 19th century. So when you hear these stories of, like, the Thames frozen over, there's these stories of Henry VIII skiing from the Tower of London to, to um, Hampton Court along the river, or, like, people playing football or these frost fairs. And it, or in America, you could walk between the different islands of Manhattan because it was all frozen. 
right? So we've been, like, we've been impacting on the environment for a lot longer than this. And people who argue this, like uh, some of them argue for this thing called half world, where they say half of the world should be given over to non-humans. And so we need to think about how much of the earth is, it's called rewilding. We need to just create spaces for nature. So yes, we need parks. We definitely need parks, but we probably just need massive amounts more wilderness. Um, And whether we're willing to do that, I'm not so sure about, but I mean, lots of scientists would argue that's what we really, really need. I wanted to ask you about the global progress that we're making, Mm -hmm. because I've noticed that in Europe especially, our carbon emissions seem to be dropping a little bit over the last sort of 10 15 years but elsewhere in the world like uh, malaysia india china brazil their carbon emissions have gone up threefold fourfold yeah do you think that's partly because the increase in population or is it that our drop is proportional to our productivity like we we don't really make things here very much anymore but everything that you buy in the shop is made in China or Malaysia. So part of the problem is that we have, for all the European countries have been like, look at our carbon emissions. We're kind of offshoring them. So we don't burn coal much in the UK at all now. We quite often go several weeks without burning coal for our electricity grid, at least, with some other particular industrial uses for coal that happen but we don't burn like we started this whole burning the coal thing but we don't we're in a, we're kind of kicking up that habit but most of us will carry around with us products that have had coal burnt in order to produce it so someone else's lungs have had to suffer the impact of that coal being burnt because they might well live next to the factory that produces our iphone or whatever um so part of that is is that we've just we don't produce those things so those carbon emissions have been kind of left for someone else to do but those countries are making money out of that, and it's part of their economic development. I'd say that several of those countries that you've mentioned have also been at the forefront of some climate action. So one of the things we decided when the world first got together and decided it was going to do something about climate change, which they've been talking about for decades at least, if not centuries, definitely decades. But they kind of did it in 1992 with the um, Rio Earth Summit. And they set up something called the the UNFCCC, which is basically the UN system for talking about climate change. And they've had a meeting about it every year. So in 2020, they have a big climate conference every year at the end of the year. So the Paris one was the last really famous one in 2015. The 2021 is probably going to be in the UK. It's not quite confirmed, but pretty likely to be in the UK, probably London. Um, And they have one every year and they've been doing this since 1992. And when they first set this up, they agreed that what they called like the developed countries the richest countries should be ones that take the most steps because they've had the benefits of using fossil fuels and they've got the therefore the ability to decarbonize more easily than countries that are still building you know this burning fossil fuels in the short term it can be very very polluting even in the short term as well as in the long term but it can also keep you warm and can help you build things that can give you money that can mean that you can feed your population um, clearing land, which is also a way in which you can create carbon problems, you know, because you, you cut down the trees. You can use that t- to feed people. These are important, you know, we need to feed people and keep them healthy and have money to also do amazing things like develop medicines and distribute those to people. You can see why countries were like, <laughs> you lot do it first. And I think that's fair enough that European countries, America, Australia, the richer countries in the world took the first steps. And India and China and Brazil and a couple of other, you know, other countries like that were like, no. On top of that, the countries that are suffering the most about, with the effects of climate change are really noticing it already. So we kind of notice it in Europe already, and not so much in the UK, but you certainly see it in some parts of, of Europe. 
certainly see it in lots of parts of America. But really, the countries that are really suffering from it are the ones that have not been burning all the fossil fuels. So they've also been pushing since the 90s, where they've been like, hey, you rich countries, you want to give us some reparations? And that argument is still going. I still haven't really got any money back from that. But yeah, basically, this, this principle that like, uh, the rich countries go first is embedded in that. Despite that, actually, China and Brazil, you know, the bigger, what we might call the BRICS countries, the bigger develop, so-called developing countries that are not so far behind in the kind of GDP measures and the kind of ways that we measure these things, they have been doing lots of things. Like, I mean, really... They, in some ways, they're pushing more ambition from those of us who probably should have been taking the lead, like Canada and the USA and Europe. Well, I saw that China, have, uh, they've scrapped plans for building, I think, 85 coal power stations. And this might be my sceptical view, but I don't think that that was for environmental reasons. It was more because it was actually cheaper to develop wind farms instead. Well, yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that's shifting all of people's decisions about this is the economics of wind and solar have their undercutting other options I mean, but one of the reasons why nuclear is not really so much of an issue anymore is that in terms of clean energy source offshore wind can often beat nuclear and solar can kind of i mean it's more complicated than that because you also need to think about where you site stuff and what's going to be appropriate for different populations but yeah it's partly an economic thing but one of the reasons why wind and solar is so cheap is that china have invested so much in it they produce so much of it so they've played a role in that Anyway, I mean, your question was sort of like, I guess people often go, but China, <laughs> yeah. But that per Chinese person, there aren't that many emissions. So you look at China as a big lump of yeah. a lot of people. That's one of the reasons why they have such high carbon emissions. That does mean that as a political entity, they have a lot of power to shift that. But they're using that power. They're still using that power to be very polluting. Don't get me wrong, the Chinese government is very polluting. However, they are also doing a lot of action on climate change. And, and you see that in India and Pakistan. Pakistan has planted a ridiculous number of trees. Um, India's got some really ambitious solar plans and they're not necessarily the people who should be picking up the weight of action on this but they are I mean Europe Europe has done some work but it's very easy to sit in Britain and go we've had two weeks without coal and you're like yeah well done but you should be doing so much more than that Um, because honestly we have we have have the space to be able to do more of it than others and as David Attenborough said a couple of weeks ago we still had this problem it's kind of on us yeah I, I'm very glad, though, that you do see India and China and Pakistan, pe- countries with huge populations like that. I think between India and uh, China, that's pretty much half of the world's population. So it's great to see that they are taking steps. Are you, are you hopeful that that will continue and that they will continue improving, developing new technologies for the rest of the world? I mean, there's lots, there's lots of things they're doing to invest in fossil fuels as well. And there's a lot of people whose lives are in danger just in the short term from that use of... I mean, the pollution, air pollution that's caused in the short term from burning fossil fuels globally is, is terrifying. The number of people who die from air pollution-related problems inside homes as well. So in the UK, most of us don't... It's actually just rich people who burn fossil fuels in their house. They're like, oh, I've got a nice open fire. Like, all right, choosing to pollute yourself, fine, and the rest of the world. Um, But most people around the world do not have that kind of choice, and so a lot of people end up having to burn fuel in the home, and that can be very, very dangerous. Ideally, we will have the sort of investment that means that we can say to people all over the world, here's a solar panel, here's an electrical electrical link to having large-scale solar or wind or hydro or something else that will give you the kind of reliable... Um, safe clean energy supply that you need but at the moment most people don't have that so parts of lots of different countries india china many many other countries are saying right how can we build new gas grids things like that because their priority is keeping in the short term 
their population you know healthy and giving them a temperate environment whether that's air conditioning or heating and one of the things you need to worry about is the you know as global temperatures go up more and more people needing to keep cold as well as to keep hot and that could potentially use a lot of energy uh, and we need to think about ways to do that cleanly um or well, i mean clean is a bit of a problematic term because no energy production is really clean but low carbon i suppose with as little environmental impact as possible well, let's, let's talk about the different environmental impacts that these different energy sources have then, because for a wind turbine, we need to get the, uh, the metals out of the earth. Yep. For solar panels, there's so many different uh, elements that go into that. Metals, um, I mean, also uh, concrete. For... Yeah. So, like, what happens to, for example, a, a solar panel at the end of its life if it only produces electricity for, say, 30 years? You need to think about how you can recycle the components and not just dump it. You need to think about renewable energy infrastructure that lasts as long as possible. Like anything, you need to think about how you can make it last and be repairable. But their production has an environmental impact and their deployment does as well. Mm. So the impact of wind turbines on birds has been massively overstated. You know what kills birds? Cats kill birds. Buildings kill birds. People kill birds. How many chickens have you eaten in your lifetime? You know, like... But wind turbines do kill birds. You know what really kills birds? Climate change kills birds. <laughs> um, so what we need to do, though, climate change does. And also uh, an oil plant kills birds and a coal plant kills birds. So even if it wasn't for climate change, energy systems kill birds. But wind turbines still do kill birds. So we need to think about how we can cite them so they kill as few birds as possible. Um, there's a lot of controversies in the UK around a new technology of tidal renewable energy. And a lot of us are like... Tidal is great. Britain is an island nation. Let's lead the world on tidal energy. And it's true that if we, there's been a lot of projects about, a lot of fuss about a project in Swansea, the Swansea Tidal Lagoon project. And it's true, if the government invested in that, we could be world leaders in tidal in the same way as we become world leaders in offshore wind. And we could make a lot of money off that and help other people make money and create a lot of jobs and also create a lot of energy that's relatively that's be low carbon and have a low environmental impact but a lot of environmental groups are worried that it, it hasn't been studied properly what the impacts to the marine life might be with tidal um, energy and where we have had some projects it has been very disruptive to marine life so we need to think about where we cite it so there's a bit of an argument actually within the environmental community about whether we take a long time to do tidal so assuming that we can get the government to fund it so dream situation we've got the money put that aside then how fast do we do it do we do it super fast because we need to tackle climate change because you know what kills marine life climate change kills marine life or do we do it slowly so we can study the biological impacts think about how carefully we could do it as possible ideally we would do it slowly but you can see why some parts of the environmental movement are like we just need to do this we just need to do this it's the biggest thing humanity's ever faced Ah, you know what kills porpoises climate change kills porpoises we're in this horrible position of being a bit between a rock and a hard place with any of our energy systems and one of the things we definitely need to do is just use less energy because all energy systems are dirty in some way they're harmful in some way and oh no all the different ways we use to feed ourselves will harm people and other animals in some way they have a you know biodiversity impact and so we need to think about how we can do this with as little impact as possible and certainly with energy one of the things we can do is is just use less of it so we need to think about how we can insulate our buildings more effectively one of the things that the eu has done so you talked about the eu dropping its carbon emissions in the last few decades one of the reasons for that and we can see this in the uk in particular is by having standards to have more energy efficient appliances like our washing machines and our 
like our light bulbs and stuff. This is, has this sort of slow, quiet, without us even noticing, low carbon transition. We've actually reduced quite a lot of carbon emissions because of this. If we really push that to have much more efficient devices, we definitely need to do it in homes in the UK. We waste so much energy just escapes through our windows and our doors and our ceilings. You know, we wouldn't need to have so much of this energy infrastructure. And the same with food, like, we might be less, we'd waste less food. And that's one of the reasons why people want, they say you should go a vegetarian at least or possibly vegan for environmental reasons, particularly for climate change, but for other environmental reasons too. Because you need land, um, you can clear a field to grow, a, you know, a plant. Or you could have a field to grow plants to feed your sheep, which also need two fields to take out that space. That space could be forest with wilderness, sure. things like that. So it's uh, about how much space we humans need to take up with what we need. And we need to probably work out how we can live our lives without using so much space. So we don't have to live a horrible, constrained life. It could just be a different life. It's still very joyful and exciting and fruitful. Um, it just uses different materials and is a bit more clever about what materials it uses. I want to get your thoughts on using tech. So one of the big advancements I think that I'm quite excited about, but I've heard that a lot of people are on the fence with or against, is using these uh, artificial forests. Mm -hmm. They're very expensive at the moment and they, they take a lot of energy to build and the materials that they use aren't are very readily available. But the price of them is coming down quite a lot. And the area that they need is, I think, 500 times less than a natural forest and the thing that really sold it to me was that this would create jobs for people to actively take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back into, uh, into the earth or make products from it. Yep. And I, I just thought that was great. And I couldn't think of many other industries that that is actually the case, where people are actually being paid to reverse the CO2 in the atmosphere. So there's various different things you might call an artificial forest, but we could say, let's maybe talk about negative emissions technologies. So there's a whole suite of different things you can do that would be different technologies which might absorb carbon and we could invest in in order to absorb carbon. Particularly if we had a price on carbon, which is sort of an economic system we might have, which would allow us, you know, that, that would help. And it is coming down in price to what do. You could make products from it. You might well have drunk Coca-Cola using, which has bubbles in it, um, that come from these sorts of things, although that's still carbon in the atmosphere once you belch it out. Um, you kind of need to bury it to get rid of it. But there's, there's different things you could do. As you say, yes, it could create jobs. However, the best type of forest we have at the moment is a forest and they can still have jobs. <laughs> so there's a lot of work that can that already exists and we could do probably, with a, well, definitely do more environmentally because there's all sorts of bad environmental impacts of bad forestry. But there are lots of, uh, if we put over more of the world to forests, there's still a lot of jobs to be had in that. And some of the massive tree planting projects, like I mentioned Pakistan, there's all sorts of incredible ones. There's a really inspiring one called the Green Wall of, I think it's called the Green Wall of Africa or Sahara. Basically, it would be the really wide bit in the African continent, just under the Sahara, like the bit that's at the widest, would be a stripe of green that you could see from space. And that would be a giant forest. As climate change gets worse, it would stop the Sahara from getting further. But it would also have all sorts of biodiversity benefits and carbon-absorbing benefits and stuff. How do we know what impact that would have sort of globally on weather patterns then? Because as far as I'm aware, there's a lot of warm air that's built up there and then that, yeah. there's a lot of currents that go around the so world. So one of the things about any of the really massive tree planting projects is you do also need to think about lots of other environmental impacts. There's all sorts of different things. And so when you talk about carbon-negative technologies... Most sort of pragmatic policy people just go, 
plant a bloody tree uh, because that's the one we've got. However, it is, and I, I to, um, yeah, go plant a tree, really, go plant trees. It's a really good thing. We should plant lots more of them. They're excellent. They're so, there's so many benefits to planting trees. It's just unbelievable. However, just planting trees is not going to get out this out of this mess, partly because if we plant the number of trees we need to, so there was a load of headlines recently about just plant loads and loads of trees and you can solve climate change. We'd have to plant so many trees. It, w- it would potentially have a lot of environmental impacts if you plant the wrong kind of tree and you plant them in the wrong places. Also, you'd have to use up land that some people might be like, that's my land. So you already have this thing called green grabbing, which is when environmental projects use land, which is contested. So, for example, Western Sahara, uh, Morocco says it's, it, Morocco runs it, but there are people from the Western Sahara, the Swahari, who say, no, we own it as a contested space. Uh, there's a lot of sort of fights for uh, Western Sahara as a liberation fight. You can Google that if you're interested. It's a really interesting part of the world. But there's a lot of disputes about positioning renewable energy, solar or offshore wind, wind in those contested areas, and whether that's going to the Moroccan government and the Sahari are like, this is our area. Um, and you can see that, how that sort of thing could happen all over the world. So contested spaces, people get pushed out because someone who says they own that area who don't necessarily own it, or there's even an argument over who owns it, just starts planting a load of trees or planting a solar farm or anything like that. So you get into green grabbing issues very quickly, potentially, and that's really worrying even before we get into all the environmental impacts. So there are various... One, This is why these sort of artificial trees are attractive, because they could potentially limit the amount of space we need. So probably long-term, we need to plant a fuckload of trees. Definitely need to do that. But on top of that, we need to think about how we can have things that aren't trees that do similar work. So one also option is having super trees. This is genetic modification of trees. So there's a woman in... Oh, where is she? Is she San Diego? Somewhere in America. There's various researchers doing this all over the world, actually, who are looking at how we can genetically modify plants to absorb more carbon. So in particular, it's the roots that can be the thing that absorbs carbon. So how can you breed through selective breeding as well as um, using sort of advanced, what we might call advanced genetic modification like CRISPR, like very modern techniques for doing this in the lab... Um, sort of speeding up what people have been doing for centuries, which is selective breeding, to produce trees that could absorb extra carbon. Now, we'd need to do environmental impact research into what else do these trees do. You can see why, a bit like when I was talking about the the tidal stuff, you're like, ideally, we do this over decades and we look at what the impact of this stuff, and meanwhile, we're like, no, we just need to plant these trees, ah, climate change. So we could end up speedily acting on climate change, planting all of these genetically modified trees, building all these tidal lagoons and causing all sorts of other problems for ourselves. And you can see why people are worried about that. But we do need to research that, otherwise we're never going to get anywhere. There's also various sort of more mechanical versions of these things, uh, which are already being developed. Um, There's some work in Canada and the US and Britain, Russia, to do things like this. There's also, they're probably better than some of the other ideas, which we may also need to rely on at some point, which are like kind of treating clouds or the oceans to be able to react it's sort of uh kind of geoengineering projects which might um help protect us from heat rate uh, or, or find other ways of absorbing carbon i've not um, heard about any of that basically we could we could create we could turn a whole type of cloud extinct by kind of just exploding particles into it um, and that might actually be really good for um climate change in the short term but maybe it might cause other problems that might be a bad idea yeah that kind of worries me there's other things you might do where you spray particular i mean you say chemical everything's a chemical it's like you spray a particular thing in in a in a cloud and it might change it to increase cloud cover in particular areas which would be really good because you need to have more rain or you could 
um, so one of the impacts of climate change is it's making the ocean really sour. So you have ocean acidification. It's one of the reasons why the coral reefs are dying out so much. Because the ocean absorbs so much carbon, but that's turning it sour as well as heating it up. And so there's ways that we might rebalance that by, you know, you've done this at school. If something's very acidic, you can add some alkaline. But you'd have to add so much alkaline to the ocean, it could cause other problems. Mm. People are experimenting with these sorts of projects, but we're really, really... I mean, this is another level on beyond tidal lagoons or genetically modified trees in terms of what other problems might we be causing for ourselves whilst trying to solve the problem of climate change. And we tried to solve the problem of being cold and hungry with fossil fuels and look what that got us. So let's maybe, you know, avoid having this problem again. I think this helps people appreciate sometimes how big this challenge is, is that all these like net zero targets for 2050, which are incredibly ambitious. So all this like, we need to have massive amounts of wind turbines and renewables. We need to have a massive insulation program so we use less energy. We need to go to... uh, not necessarily being totally vegetarian, but plant-based predominantly. We need to fly less, all this stuff. And on top of that, all these these calculations that the IPCC and the British government use, for the British ones, or the IPCC use globally, they all assume a level of negative emissions technologies, which may be tree planting, but considering the quantity they expect, they're also assuming technologies we haven't really developed properly yet, that we're only starting to develop, because they assume that by 2050 we'll have more of them researched and working. So they built in a level of kind of sci-fi almost into these things. So when we see these projects about tree planting or artificial forests, these aren't going to get us out of the problem. They're already being calculated into our assumptions that we're going to be doing that, plus all of the other things. And on top of that, those things are a bit dangerous. Are there any other technologies that you see coming through that wouldn't be messing with the skies and messing with the oceans, that more like these artificial trees or something that's... So there are what we might call clean... It's one of the reasons why I don't like calling clean energy clean energy, although I haven't found a better phrase for it, is that none of these options are clean. And it's very easy for us to be like, oh, that one's okay and these ones are dirty. Like, no, they're all problematic. Humans have an impact on the earth and we kind of have... I think we have to come to terms with how damaging we are and think about how we can live with as least damage as possible, but kind of also own that a bit, that, like, you know, humans are damaging. Yeah. Um, And there are a lot of us. And I I think that humans are a good thing. I like humans. Um, I don't want us... I'm not somebody... I'm not one of these sort of environmentalists who are like, we need a lot... We just need to kill everybody. Do you feel like there are too many of us, though? I think it's a challenge. I don't... I'm not an environmentalist who would say people shouldn't have children I think that having children is a human right and I think that we still actually could live on the earth with you know the population that we have and bigger I don't I think think it's a simple solution but I think it is a challenge the number of humans there are on the earth is a challenge I have heard people saying like the the number one thing that you can do to reduce your carbon emissions is just not have a child and I know that's not um that's not really feasible but I don't think it's it's not it's a very personal decision that people can have but also I don't think it's helpful to think about your personal carbon emissions or that your child like your child is their own carbon emissions I I think it's quite problematic to be like oh well I didn't have a child therefore I you know it's very easy to be like well I can fly I can eat meat no we all need to do all of the things and I know I've got quite a few friends who um 
have said they won't have more than one or two children for that re- for for the climate for climate change reasons. Well, um, I think that's, but, that's probably quite a good thing. It's it's one of those things that in the West anyway, what we've found is that as education has gone up, people have had less children. So if you look at the... So there's one of the problems with the with the population debate is that it shares a history with eugenics. Like a lot of the comp- organisations that were set up against, against population growth were deeply problematic in other reasons. They also, though, have lots of really good alliances with uh, projects for birth control, which are about women's rights, who also often have really problematic relations. Like, basically, there were a load of people in the early 19th century that were trying to get women's rights that ended up just working with some very dodgy people. I mean, eugenics is really interesting and really complicated, but it's very easy for the population's debate to become one. That becomes a matter of white people in rich countries saying I don't want brown people in poor countries to have children it gets very racist very quickly now most of the population and some of the population organizations have a history of doing that in the past I don't know any that do that now or if they do it they kind of hide it but like so most of the people who I know who work in anti-population groups are very clear that what they're doing is about empowering women because that's actually the way to get population rates down now my argument is that you don't need the excuse of climate change to empower women because that is a good thing in its own right so i am all for educating women let's support educating women you do, i don't need climate change to do that maybe one of the outcomes of that is it's going to bring population down which may potentially also have an environmental impact and if that pleases the people in the population organizations great but I am not going to be campaigning for population control because I say, oh, well, actually, the benefit is educating women because I'm already campaigning to educate women because I think that's an important thing in its own right. Um, yeah, totally. So I think, I mean, that, that it, may, it may well be that they also, you know, they have the same, you know, they have, they have intersecting interests or intersecting outcomes. But it's, it's not something I personally campaign on and I don't necessarily think it's particularly helpful. I also know a lot of people who aren't having children because they're scared of what they bring people into, bring the child into, and I totally get that. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole other question, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I, ultimately, I think it's a personal one for people um, because it's so wrapped up in... And any of these things, any decisions we make about the environment, whether it's what we eat or what, whether we have children or where we go on holiday, are going to be intermingled with so many other personal decisions that it's wrong to point at someone and go, you flew, you ate beef burger, you had a child. Because ultimately, we want to be able to, to create a world that we can live with as little environmental impact as possible, but also enjoying our life and having the kinds of lives and relationships that we want to have. And these will always have compromises because humans are full of compromise because we're social animals and that involves compromise. And that might mean, you know, travelling to see a family member or, you know, not going vegetarian because, you know, you and your family eat meat at particular times. You know, there's all sorts of different things that... Or having a child because you just really, really want a baby. Like, I think that's, that's fine. The low carbon world that we're going to create will be one of compromise and has to still be one where people are able to thrive in the way they want to thrive. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I just realised that we're sort of running quite a bit over now, but um, I just want to make sure that we get out the message of how people can get involved in all the different things that you're doing here. Generally, for action on climate change, I think it's really important that we work in three different levels. So there's things that you can do on your own that's just stuff you can do yourself because it's easier than having to deal with those compromises with other people. You're just like, I'm going to do this thing. There's things that you can do with others. Um, So it's when you bring people together to do something together, either in your, your community or just with your friends. And then there's when you have to argue with other bits of power to get them to shift stuff. And I think we all need to be doing all of those. And we need to be doing them in lots of different areas. So... 
For example, if you want to do something on your own, we've got various resources on our website. If you go to our website and look for our carbon crush area, there's loads of different things that you can start off doing stuff on your own and with other people. So like I often say there's so many different places we need to start and you need to start somewhere. So just choose one you like that you know you'll do well because that's the one you'll be most powerful at and that's the one you'll be the most infectious at. So if you like food, challenge yourself to go vegan for a month and see what new recipes you come up with. But also invite all your friends around for dinner. If you like travelling, challenge yourself not to fly for a year and see new world, parts of the world that you discover and Instagram the shit out of your journeys to share it with others and to show people that it's normal and it's easy. You know, tell all your friends about this amazing new train route that you found to Berlin or whatever. You know, talk about it. But then we will also need to, to work on a political level. So like at the moment, I just was talking to a supporter who rang up just now who had been lobbying her MP about onshore wind because she wants us to be able to build wind turbines and they're currently banned in England. So she was asking her MP to work on a political level to lift, lift that ban. And that's something we all need to do too. Um, so if people want to get involved in our onshore wind campaign, it's on our website, but there's lots of other campaigns they might get involved in on a political level to raise awareness of MPs. Or they might lobby businesses to change how they practice. Ultimately, we all need to work in so many different areas and we probably need to be working in several different areas at once at different levels. But if people are trying to find somewhere to start, start with the thing that they will enjoy because they will do that with the most power. They'll be most infectious. And if they go to our website, there's loads of different options. That's what we try and give people is a load of different starting points. I wish there were more opportunities for things that people could do to take action on climate change. In this country, there are nowhere near as many opportunities as there should be for people to participate in that. And that's a big thing that we do at 1010, is that we campaign to create new opportunities and we work with um, technologists and innovators to create new opportunities because we know that people come to us saying, I want to do something. And we're like, could give up meat or flying, try and think of something more exciting. And we used to be able to say, why don't you build a solar farm like the people in Balkan? But the government cut the solar support, so you can't really do that much anymore. So we're lobbying to have more solar support back. It's why we're lobbying to lift the ban on onshore wind, because we want to be able to say to people, let's build a wind turbine. Wouldn't that be exciting? Why didn't you do that? Because we know there's loads of communities that want to do that. And we want to be able to, to respond to people with, yes, let's do this and this and this and this. Let's put heat pumps in your park and let's make your swimming pool renewable and let's build a wind turbine and let's put solar on your school and why don't we start this mass program of like the whole community like why don't we have all the schools going plant-based for a week and see what happens you know and having those opportunities and trying the different stuff out that we need to try and at the moment we need a bit more support from government to do that so that's one of the reasons why we do quite a lot of government lobbying work and why just contacting your MP and telling them that you care about climate change is still a really useful thing that people can do. And they can find all that information on your website, yeah, which is... Oh, uh, 1010uk.org, 1010uk.org. One of the things that we try and do with that website is give you loads of different places you can start. Perfect. All right. Is there any other message that you want to give out? This is massive, and it's really... like. Sometimes I have a colleague who says, we get to be the generation that saves the world. And I sometimes think, I didn't want to do that. Other things I wanted to do in my life and be a superhero. Bit of a burden. It is. It's it's a bit of a a burden. However, that's kind of the deal that we've been dealt by history. So we have to go out and do that. If we don't do it, we missed our chance. We have the, well, yeah, you say we have this burden, but we also have these amazing luxuries that we have around us today, like the technology that we get to use and the transport that we get to use. Our lives are so much better in so many ways than people a couple of hundred years ago when they were first developing these technologies. And so we have the power to think about how we can shift it. And we have the opportunity to improve. Some of the technologies are not that great. Like they're very polluting. They make us cough. You know, how can we make, you know, how can we change how we move around so we don't pollute our streets? It is an opportunity to make the world better. 
And then I, uh, there's this line from Obama, which gets reused a lot, but I think is really important, which is, it's really worth thinking about, which is, we're the first generation to really feel the impacts of climate change, and we're the last that can do anything about it. And this is our moment. And so we really have to make it matter. What a wonderful way to end it then. Thank you very much for your time. There we go. I hope you all learned something today. I certainly did. It really fills me with hope there's people out there working day in, day out, making a difference and spreading the message. I love the way she talked about maybe not wanting the responsibility, but given that we don't have a choice, grasping it with both hands. Their new website is wearepossible.org. I want you all to go there and just have a look through it. There's a section called The Challenges. They've divided their campaigns across five key areas where the public can get involved to work towards tackling the climate crisis, whether it's switching to a green energy supplier, getting in touch with your MPs, or simply going out and planting a tree. Right, I think I've been preachy enough for one day. You can get in touch with Alice Bell on Twitter, at Alice Bell. And you can find me at FascinatePod. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.